Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today I'm sharing with you an interview that I did over at the Classical Theism podcast with John DeRosa. Here I'll be defending the fourth way. Hope you guys enjoy. I'm joined today by Jake Busher, who is the host of the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast, where he provides lighthearted and informative commentary on theological, philosophical, societal, and economic topics from a Catholic perspective. He is also an integral member of the CT research team. Jake Busher, welcome to the Classical Theism Podcast. Thank you, John. It is an honor to be here. I listened to a former episode where I think uh, Gomer claimed to be the least qualified ever guest. I have wonderful news for him. I have now taken his spot. So, uh, yes, you're, you're welcome, Gomer. Um, and it's great to be here. Well, we'll see about that because you've done some interesting research on the fourth way, which we're going to be getting into today. And personally, myself, and I know a lot of other people tend to just run and hide when the fourth way needs to be defended because we don't grasp everything that goes into it super well. But first, just some autobiographical stuff. How did you get interested in studying St. Thomas in general? And then the fourth way in particular, because you've done a good amount of writing on this subject, and we'll be linking to that later. But give us a few highlights of your backstory. Sure, John. Well, the backstory is a long story. So I'm a convert to Catholicism. I began, I'd say, roughly Presbyterian. So it all started when I decided I'd get deeper into my faith, which meant for me, since we celebrated John Calvin's birthday with a cake, with his face on the cake, I figured I'd read some John Calvin. Safe place, right? Well, he kept on quoting this fellow named St. Augustine. And I thought, well, if he likes him, you know, transitive property, he must be good. So I read him and that got me going down the line to Catholicism. Um, took a long time, but eventually after I was married, I realized that once again, I need to be serious about my faith. And now knowing what I knew from St. Augustine and, and others, that that meant that I needed to be part of that church that, you know, Jesus Christ started. Um, that should be the one. So I decided to, to convert with some help from my, uh, from my cousin, Sam, he kind of had a conversion of heart. I had a conversion of intellect. So we kind of three-legged raced it all the way across the Tiber. Um, I guess it was a swimming race. Um, along the way, I discovered pints with Aquinas and I had really not known anything about yes. Aquinas. And after hearing some of those early episodes, I thought, this is the guy I need to be reading. So I went down to my local library and they had one copy of the Summa Theologiae. So I brought it home. Um, it was overdue for many, many weeks and, uh, started digging into that. And I thought it was phenomenal after that, through a series of divinely ordained, uh, accidents. Uh, and this is a story in and of itself. I ended up being the guest speaker for this place called the museum of, uh, philosophy and science on St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, well, to give you a little clue on that, I was on a run and I was praying my rosary while running, you know, multitasking as one does. And I just felt God say, hey, stop, you should go in here. It doesn't happen often. <laughs> so I did. And I see this place, grand opening, Museum of Philosophy and Science. So I go in, I find the guy who's setting it up and uh, I guess runs the place. When we start talking, I realize it's a little bit new agey and culty. Um, and by a little, I mean a lot. So I told him, you know, there's this guy that I just learned about named St. Thomas Aquinas. You should really read him. Um, so we had a good conversation later. I bumped into him in town again 
had a similar conversation, apparently forgot who he was. That cousin I referenced earlier, who was also on his way to the Catholic faith, bumped into him, had a similar idea. Sounds like you need to read some Aquinas, my friend. Well, he had written down my name and number and the words St. Thomas Aquinas, lost it, and a few months later found it when he was in desperate need of a guest speaker. <laughs> so he calls me and says, could you do like a two to three hour lecture on the life and philosophy of Thomas Aquinas? And I thought, I don't, I don't even think I was Catholic yet, but of course I can. So I went into crazy study mode, learning everything I possibly could. And of course, you have to deal with the five ways. So, uh, yeah, I was binging content on the five ways. And one of which that I just couldn't wrap my head around was the fourth way. And for one major reason that nobody writes about it, nobody mm -hmm. cares about it, nobody loves it, and nobody cares to explain it too much. But I think that's a problem. And I think we're correcting that this very day, Mr. John DeRosa. Um, some of the things that I saw seemed like you could just push them over. People would reference how if there are things that are tall, more and less tall, there must be a tallest. And I thought, well, that can't be right, because I thought this was about formal participation. And there's no form of tallness. That's a Cambridge property. Furthermore, I'm absolutely sure that whoever the tallest man is isn't making me to be almost six feet one, um, to which I round six foot one or six foot two on occasion. Um, so that just didn't seem right. And a lot of the other content, you see people just knock it over or dismiss it. And I knew this Thomas Aquinas fellow whose book I had had uh, had kifed from the law from the library was pretty darn smart and he wouldn't make these fundamental mistakes so i i worked very hard on trying to be able to describe it and defend it in a way that did make sense so yeah there's um there's a number of advantages i see with the fourth way that made me really like it uh let's see six off the top of my head one there's common objections that there are no such thing as hierarchically ordered series. So some atheists will claim that and say, ah, the first way or the second way, the third way doesn't work. Or they'll say that there can be infinite regresses. A lot of the debate centers around these questions. But to a large extent, I think the fourth way is sidestepping that. Also, I think the fourth way proves a ton about God just in one shot. Um, I would claim that when the premises are laid out clearly, um, disputing them makes one sound ridiculous, um, which is always a plus. I'd say this is a sneak attack argument. Nobody, no atheist is sitting around thinking, well, what I need to do is defend against the fourth way. Somebody could attack me with that one. Nobody's thinking that. So if you get good at the fourth way, you're going to have something that's very persuasive to people who don't have a persuasive defense. Um, and next up is because it's been so maligned and straw manned, if you can make it work in conversation, people are going to think, what else can theists make work? What if he goes to the first way and does a good job of explaining it? If the fourth way can be persuasive, oh my word, what else is up his, his sleeve? Um, and I guess the last reason, which I think is reason number six, roundabouts, is that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't rely on a particular theory of time, like say the Kalam argument would. And as somebody who loves philosophy of time, that's quite important that you can be agnostic to your theory of time. And yet this can still be a compelling argument. Well, Jake, I think those are some fantastic reasons. Thank you so much for sharing that backstory. Uh, praise God for your conversion. All the providential aspects of that were really cool. I also think it's pretty 
incredible that your local library had a copy of the Summa. I think that might be a good litmus test for the quality of local <laughs> libraries. I wonder how many people could walk down there and ask if they have a copy of the Summa Theologica and find it. So it that is just great for stuff. Public funding, John. Yes, it's, it's, oh, just shut fantastic. it down. You don't have one. Shut it down. Yeah. But I like. Uh, I really like those reasons. You're absolutely right that nobody is. Not only are a lot of us theists not prepared to defend it in conversation, you're totally right on the flip side of that. A lot of skeptics or atheists are not ready to hear about it. And so you might be able to catch someone off guard or surprise them by the truth of this fourth way if you first get comfortable with your own understanding of it. And that's kind of why I have you here today to help us get comfortable understanding what is the fourth way saying? How does it work? What are those key premises? And yeah, when Aquinas says stuff about fire and maximums in a genus being the cause, can we make sense of those and can we defend those? So I do appreciate you coming on to do this. Before we get into the fourth way itself, maybe just list out what is some of the metaphysical background we're going to need to understand? Sure. We'll kind of hit some along the way, but a few things that I want people to have in mind is uh, first, uh, relax a little bit. <laughs> um, these aren't big points that Thomas is making. I think a lot of people overthink it. I think they're pretty small ones and ones which are readily accessible to common experience and uh, common sense. So don't uh, have your guard too far up thinking that he's making these giant grand claims. I think as we're going to see, he's making things which are a little bit more commonly acceptable. Um, the second one is that, as you referenced, the example of fire can kind of trip people up. And it's because he doesn't mean the same thing when he says fire, as we mean. So he's operating um, based on pretty old science. He's working off of Aristotle's idea in the physics. So when he says fire, it's something more akin to just saying heat or maybe saying energy. Um, so if you're kind of picturing dancing flames in a cozy campfire, that's not exactly what Aquinas wants to have pop into your noggin. When I write about the fourth way, I like to update it with the example of salt, because I think that's pretty true to the intent of Aquinas, and it kind of sidesteps some of that um, uh, some of that confusion that can come across otherwise. Um, the other thing is, as I discussed a little bit earlier, it's not like the other of the five ways, especially one through three, is specifically about tracing back a chain of causality. And this one works a little bit differently. So try to switch gears. I know you can get some momentum going through one through three and hit the fourth way and just kind of, you know, the train goes off the rails. But try to kind of put yourself in a more platonic mindset here. Um, what we're talking about specifically is called exemplar formal causality. And what it relates to is the extent to which a given being participates in a form. I like to give the example to kind of prime your mind is uh, imagine you're making an Excel spreadsheet, and in one of the fields you put in a name, say, John DeRosa. Throughout your sheet, wherever the name John DeRosa is, is found, it's because there is a referent. And that's kind of what we're doing here. If anything, I would name this like the argument from ontological referent. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But when we look at that Excel spreadsheet, we don't have to trace back this chain of causality. We simply say that that which defines the set is that which is entered in this field and then referenced elsewhere. But I think that'll be made more clear later. The final thing is, and we'll explain the transcendentals more fully as we go, you do need a basic understanding about this. Um, 
This is something which is common to things of many genuses um, and is ultimately philosophically convertible into being. Now, some of you who have read The Fourth Way might be thinking, whoa, 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 slow your intellectual roll. Um, he mentions nobility, and nobility is not one of the transcendentals, and that's kind of mostly true. However, um, and I got great comfort from hearing a similar opinion offered by Gavin Kerr, so I think I'm right. I think that what he means by by nobility is actuality. And one piece of evidence for that is if you read Aquinas on the um, on the question whether or not God has a body, he talks about nobility, and he describes how in our bodies, the soul is more noble than the body because it animates the body. And those who know some Thomistic metaphysics know that the soul is the principle of actuality, forms the principle of actuality, and the material is of potentiality, right? It's being informed by that. So he sets this up as more and less noble because it relates to the great chain of being. And the great chain of being is ordered based on that which has the highest or lowest amount of actuality. Now we know that actuality is ultimately convertible into being because in God, he is pure actuality and he is complete unrestricted being in the cause of all being itself. So if nobility trips you up, uh, don't let it trip you up. It's in a roundabout way, kind of like a transcendental. So yes, have those things in mind. All right. I think that's a great overview, Jake. And don't worry if people are worried that we're already getting too technical with some of those terms, we're going to walk through it a step at a time. What I'm going to do next is read the actual argument. And I'm reading from the newadvent.org version of the fourth way. And then Jake, I'm sorry, I'm going to slightly audible again on you. Cause I just, I like the way this is going and what you're doing. Let's just stick to the outline, but what I'm going to do for listeners, let's stick to the outline. Jake has also written up a really cool article on this where he tells a narrative that is really an engaging narrative has to do with a bomb on an airplane, but also parallels the key ideas in the fourth way. And I was, Jake, I was going to maybe have you read that, but what I think I'll do is we'll kind of just stick to the outline of the fourth way itself, but I will link to that for listeners who want to hear that story. And maybe we'll even do a bonus episode where you tell it on the air. Does that sound good? Ooh, that sounds very good. All right. Okay. So let me read the fourth way itself. Quote, the fourth way is taken from the gradation to be found in things. Among beings, there are some more and some less, good, true, noble, and the like. But more and less are predicated of different things, according as they resemble in their different ways something which is maximum, as a thing is said to be hotter, according as it is more nearly resembles that which is hottest. So that there is something which is truest, something best, something noblest, and consequently, something which is uttermost being. For those things that are greatest in truth are greatest in being, as it is written in the Metaphysics uh, Book 2, or Roman numeral 2. Now, the maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus, as fire, which is the maximum heat, is the cause of all hot things. Therefore, there must also be something which is to all beings the cause of their being, goodness, and every other perfection. And this we call 
God. You can tell why End people quote. don't like this argument, right? Because you hear that and you're like, I don't know where he's going. What's he saying? Is he's leaping from point to point. D- to those who are familiar with other arguments for God, like the Kalam, you know, everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe begins to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now let's unpack. This is not of the same kind. So understandably disliked at this point, hopefully not by the end of the episode. Yes. Well, can we go through this one sentence at a time, and then you give us some more insight as to why we think the premises are true? At any time, you can give sure. us like an excursus and give us more detail, but I think let's break it down like a point at a time. Does that sound good? Sounds good. All right. So the first claim, the fourth way is taken from the gradation to be found in things. Among beings, there are some more and some less good, true, noble, and the like. What's going on here? And then is Aquinas going to be open to what to Dawkins' famous objection that there's some things that are more or less smelly, and then you get a smelliest thing as well? Talk us through this claim. Sure. All right. So, so let's start talking about this gradation idea, and let's take one of his examples. Let's take the idea of a gradation of truth. So he says that a gradation of truth can be found in many different things. Now, I'd like to point out from the start, this cannot be denied, since it's a prerequisite for launching an objection to begin with, because one must claim that their view is more true and mine is less true, that the fourth way is less true than the competing claim. So in order to launch an objection against this particular claim, well, it seems to be self-defeating. So indeed, we do see a gradation of truth. And we could offer some other examples. If I was to ask all the listeners, rank these things from least to most true. Uh, 2 plus 2 equals 4. 2 plus 2 equals 5. 2 plus 2 equals potato. I promise you every single listener, um, of which there are many and many wise ones, all of them ranked those correctly. Furthermore, I think we could talk about truths which are more extensive. We could talk about truths which are, in a sense, truer. Um, for instance, I could make uh, true statements about your best friend. I could also make true statements about the position of a single hydrogen atom. So the scale, the importance of these truths um, are, can be put on a continuum. So there's a variety of ways we could defend this, but at very least, I'd say that it's very difficult to deny because then you're making a claim that your view is more true than mine, which of course is all we need for this part of the argument to get off the ground, a gradation of truth. So truth is found in many things, and it's not unique to one type of things. So I give the example, uh, dogness is unique to and only found in dogs, but truth, goodness, nobility, those are found in many different categories or genuses of things, and they're also found even to differing degrees in things of the same category. For instance, there are good and bad dogs, and this is a gradation within the category. And there are good and bad wines, good and bad cars, good and bad trampolines. But what we can conclude from this point is that these things don't have their goodness according to their nature, because if they did, all instances of the things would have it, and to the same degree, but they clearly don't. So all of those dogs have dogness, and to the same degree, but they don't all have goodness. Instead, it seems to be something added to the individual thing, since it's not good by virtue of either its essence, what it is, or its thatness, its existence. 
So I promise that all these claims were simple and readily accessible. All Aquinas is saying here is that if things have more or less of something like goodness or truth, then the possession of this is not theirs by nature, but instead is theirs by participation in something which does have it in nature. Um, so to highlight this a little bit more, give the analogy. Let's say you have some teriyaki sauce, and you note that it is salty. Well, does it have saltiness by nature? Well, we could ask the question, and we find that there are more and less salty teriyaki sauces. Further, we'd find that there are things which aren't teriyaki sauce, but they're still salty. So if you have a pretzel, it doesn't first have to participate in teriyaki sauce nature. In order to be salty, it could just be salty through something else, right? And zooming in on that teriyaki sauce, we find that because it doesn't have its, salt, its saltiness through its own nature, it gets it from something else. In this case, teriyaki sauce is made with soy sauce. That's what makes it salty. Then we could ask a similar question about soy sauce. Does it have it through its nature or not? Well, we have some clues. There are more and less salty soy sauces. Further, we can see things which aren't soy sauce, which are salty, and they don't have to first participate in soy sauce nature in order to be salty. So we can continue our quest. And we find that what makes soy sauce salty? Well, it's salt. And here's the cool thing about salt. It's not, in a way, it's salty, but salty itself just means to be like salt, and nothing can be more salty than salt itself. So we found a point of termination. So salt contains within its nature the reason for its own saltiness. And therefore, it being the, the thing which just is the maximum of the set, not just arbitrarily, like it just happens to be the most salty, but by its own nature, becomes the cause for all salty things. So if, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, if salt itself ceased to exist, nothing could be salty, i.e. like salt, because there's no ontological referent. So in that way, it becomes the cause for the soy sauce's saltiness, because it's Salt-likeness, it depends on salt at all times and everywhere, kind of like the the, uh, the the words John DeRosa always and everywhere depend in our Excel spreadsheet on the field, which is defined as John DeRosa, and likewise with that teriyaki sauce. Okay, okay, so we, we're kind of getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but let's circle back to good old Dawkins. Yes, no, I thought that was very good, though, and it, with the saltiness um example that really makes it vivid but he's going to say yeah but then you got to do smelliness and mm -hmm. you're going to have oh, yeah, something that is the like the smelliest thing go ahead of course of course so with good old dawkins what it does prove is that he stinks at philosophy right um, but more charitably more charitably i think he's correct that if we find things that are more and less say stinky then stink exists right more and less salty than salt exists but as we'll soon see, this has literally nothing to do with the argument, because what Aquinas is dealing with are things which are philosophically convertible into being, mm. and stink is clearly not. And therefore, because they're not philosophically convertible into being, they don't have any relation to uh, what we know of the divine nature. So when we get to pure being itself, uh, truth, uh, goodness, nobility, these things relate to the divine nature because they're convertible into being, stink does not, so it has nothing to do with God. Now, if it happens to be true that stink is indeed a form, then there is a sense that God causes the form to exist, right? God is the, uh, is the cause of all things, including all forms to exist. So that part is true, 
but it doesn't relate to our argument for God. So I think that's why he misses the point. Chiefly, because stink has no relation to being. In the same way that salt causes its own saltiness, but not its own existence, stink may be the reason, if it has a form, for its own stinkiness, but certainly not its own existence. If you'd like, I can get into a uh, section of the Summa, a pretty long paragraph. It talks about God as the exemplar cause of things, and in what relation forms relate to the divine essence. Or if you'd like, we can keep on going to the next section. Cheers to your yeah, well, let's <laughs> let's save that quote. I think that'll be useful in a moment. But I want to raise some some points here, though, Jake, because I think, and then I want you to elaborate on that notion of: Are you going to do that in the next part? Philosophically convertible into being? Oh yes, are we going to we'll hit that? Okay, Don't worry. okay, because that that really is the key. So the idea is, it's not just any gradation we find. The argument doesn't spring from any gradation out there. It turns out it's going to be about gradations of things that are, as Jake said, philosophically convertible into being. And he's going to explain what that means as we go a little bit further. Another point I want to raise, though, potentially, though, when you gave those statements about the math, more more or less true is a difficult to our modern mind, the way that we learn things. Because, and even thinking to Aristotle, so like 2 plus 2 equals 4, 2 plus 2 equals 5, 2 plus 2 equals potato. If truth is just saying of what is, that it is, and saying of what is what is not that it is that it is not then it does seem to be a kind of like on off switch binary thing either some either we've said something true or we haven't our sentences are either true or they're false two plus two is equals four is true two plus two equals five is just false two plus two equals potato would be meaningless as an operator but even like two plus two equals a thousand is false. And so people are, it's a little hard for us to wrap our mind around as um, more or less true if we just think of the quality of a proposition that is uttered and whether it's true or false. So I think we almost have to say, okay, that's not exactly how we're thinking about more or less true here. I've also heard Dr. Eleanor Stump give the example of a bagel. And now, where are you from originally, Jake? Originally from New Hampshire. We have bagels. We have bagels. You do have bagels. Yeah. So I'm from New yeah. Jersey, northern New Jersey, New York. And if you're from like Ohio, what you think is a bagel is not really a bagel. This would be a claim. Now, they might have ways to do it better now. Um, but in New York, a New York bagel, a New Jersey bagel, we might say that's like the real bagel. That's the true bagel, a New York bagel or a New Jersey bagel, which may be available on the coast or even more widespread now. But back in the day when my friends were in college and they would go out into the Midwest and they would get a bagel, they would say, this isn't a bagel. And I think the notion of gradation of truth is how something more or less conforms to that true idea in the sense of a bagel, or in another sense, you gave dogginess, how, how well a dog lives up to the true nature and succeeds in being a flourishing dog. I think we almost have to think along the lines of those concepts rather than just a binary of true-false as a quality of propositions. Does that ring true for you, or what do you think about that? I think that's quite true, but I would nuance that a little bit. Yeah, do bit. it. 
Um, and actually, I, I can read from uh, one of the articles if you like, because there is a sense where you're totally right. Like things either have truth or don't. But we're not talking about have truth or don't as much as saying there's a ranking or a gradations within things which already have some type of truth. And what it's trying to get to is it's trying to get to being. So I offer that example, but I also offer the parallel example of which being can ground more truth. So we traditionally say that truth is the equation of intellect and being. So what the truth is meant to do in this argument is to point to things with more or less being. So I talk about the types of truth, the grandness of truth, the levels of truth that can be grounded either by something with a minimal amount of being, like the singular hydrogen uh, atom, or something with a greater amount of being, which is the point of the argument, like, say, your best friend. Um, Mm. But yeah, I would say that, uh, but, but I'll... I actually have a few pulled up. Um, So this is from a similar objection. It sounds like what we're saying here, where it says things can't have more or less being. It's like an on and off. There's no gradations of being. So I offer uh, two answers. And if you like, I can pull those up. Yeah, let's do it. It's a really cool section. I haven't read this before, so I hope I said something true. (laughs) Uh, One is, which is uh, which has more being? You or the totality of reality. Clearly, one has more being the other by whatever metric you choose. And another one that I like even more here is what about quantum fields? They do, in fact, seem to have some properties which make them um, real and other properties which make them seem to be less real. So it seems that the quantum fields are less real in a sense than regular objects. So I think that we can make some type of appeal to philosophy of matter where there do seem to be things which can ground true statements, but they can't ground all these true statements. And I think fields would be an excellent, like tangible example of something which seems to be in the middle. Um, Let's see, let's see. Um, Again, I have the grounding of uh, statements here. And these are, are these all in your article on your website? Oh yeah. Yep. Multiple articles. So a lot of the, I'm going to be linking to these just for folks who want to get the details. Yeah, sure. All right, cool. Um, well, yeah, did I answer that enough? Or do you? Want I think to that's good. Let's go on to the next claim. Yeah, I think that's a good. It's definitely enough to go on. I want to go on to the next claim, and then as we go through, if if we need to go back to something, we can. But the next part of the argument, uh, Aquinas says, but more and less are predicated of different things, according as they resemble in in their different ways something which is maximum, as a thing is said to be hotter according to as it resembles that which is hottest. So that there is something which is truest, something best, something noblest, and consequently something which is uttermost being, as you were saying before, it comes back to being. For those things that are the greatest in truth are greatest in being, as it is written in Metaphysics 2. Um, I have to check. I, I'm assuming that's book two of Aristotle, but it could be. It's Roman numeral two. Here. Yeah, I think we'll, it's we'll get that up. Book two. OK, so walk us through this portion. And if you need to as well, elaborate on that notion of philosophically convertible into being. Sure. Well, let's kind of hit that right from the start. Um, and I referenced earlier how, how truth is the equation of intellect and being. Um, the way that I like to view it is simply that um, truth is being as viewed by an intellect. And we could say that uh, goodness is um, is tr- is uh, is being as viewed by the will. So as they relate to different parts of us, it is it is being all the way through. However, we experience as either truth or as goodness. So goodness is uh, good to a thing. It's it's uh, can be 
offered as a relation of perfection. So we desire something because it is good that entails the nature of an existent thing. It entails within the nature of goodness that there is some type of being. Um, and likewise with truth, we need some type of truth maker that grounds it and makes something to be true. It includes within the idea of truth, the nature of being. And being, which Aquinas also offers as one of these, well, that one's quite forthright because when we talk about gradations of being in some way, well, that relates directly to it. Nobility, as we talked about a little bit earlier, not entirely a transcendental, doesn't typically appear in the lists, but it relates to your level in the great chain of being, your nobility. And this is derivative in, uh, in his metaphysics of how much actuality one has. And uh, we believe ultimately that full unbridled actuality entails a uh, maximal type of existence. Does that answer that? I think that's well. pretty good. Yes. Okay. okay, cool. So we got that basically in place. So now we're uh, we're going to deal with we're on to the probably the most shocking and controversial one of the claims <laughs> as, it, as it's read. And no, people just use this to falsify it because they think this just makes no sense. But I like how you hedged in the beginning about don't don't take Aquinas to be making claims that are too grand and too sweeping because then you're more likely to misread him. But the next claim is, quote, now, the maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus, as fire, which is the maximum heat, is the cause of all hot things, end quote. And people are just going to say, well, isn't this just false because fire isn't the maximum heat? And then how are we to understand this claim about the maximum in any genus being the cause? Right. So we covered actually a little bit of, of this in one of the earlier points. So what we're talking about here is more or less as it relates to a formal resemblance. Um, and we we relate to things like salty. So I kind of offer that salt example. So when he's talking about being um, hottest, it's not fire's not hottest because it just happens to be the hottest instantiated thing but because it defines the set of hotness. So it's we kind of gave that hedging earlier that when he says fire, don't think about the dancing flames around the campfire. What he really means is like heat. So if we're to reformulate that objection, it's like, how can he say that heat is a maximum of heat? It's like, ah, uh, <laughs> what else would define something as being like heat other than the nature of heat itself? Or, or likewise, we could say, how can he say things are more or less salty and that that's caused by salt? Well, because salty simply means like salt. It defines the set. And of course, this helps us answer the perennial objection against God that will never die, which is everything, you know, it has a cause. What caused God? It's like, no, as soon as you understand what we mean by the nature of God, like, like maximum, you know, actuality, completely unmingled with any potentiality or non-being, well, that just drops right out. That's like asking why salt salty. You're asking why, why the cause of all existence itself. Well, my existence is a verb. It, what causes that? It's like, no, 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 I don't think you understand. That is the cause of all existence. That's not an arbitrary stopping point. That's the only satisfying stopping point, just like we would only stop at why does that teriyaki sauce get salty at the thing which is salt in and of itself. So that's what we're trying to, to get to here. So why does he, he say that, that fire is the maximum of heat? Because that's what defines the set. Things are more and less hot as they approach whatever it means to be heat or hotness in and of itself. Um, and so then, yeah, how's that? And the causality, no, that's good. The, the cause here, 
the max of any genus is the cause of all things in that genus. Just one more time, what kind of causality is this? Because like you said at the beginning, I think people are like, well, one, there's no tallest person in the world. And two, even if there is a tallest person, they're not causing me to be a certain height. What kind of causality? Just give right, it to us right, one more time. Right. So, so tallness, things like that, Cambridge property doesn't have a form. So it, it doesn't quite relate to that. Right. So as we talked about earlier, so it's a cause because it is a prerequisite for something participating more or less in the form, right? Mm. So we're saying that if there was no such thing as the color red, things could not be more and less red because they'd be more or less blank. If salt as a nature did not exist, then your pretzel could not be like salt or as we call it, salty. So if we took this thing out, if this did not exist, that would imply the non-existence of any degree of participation in that thing. So if things can be more or less good, for instance, um, you have your own mother and you have a, uh, a small flea-bitten rat. If you can put these on a continuum of less to more good, then that means that there is some type of gradation of goodness, that single hydrogen atom and a blue whale, Hitler and Mother Teresa, you or the totality of reality. I mean, again, it's often viewed as these are really big points. It's like, come on, we can say that there is some type of gradation of goodness. Um, with being, we can offer the examples of there's some things with like a deep dependence relationship. For instance, you can have a thought in your mind and then you can stop thinking about it. But mm. you don't go out of existence because the thought goes out of existence. But there's a different dependence relationship of the thought to you. If like you don't, if you stop thinking about something, you don't disappear. But it, yeah, it doesn't work in the opposite direction. So that's the type of gradation of being. I think you offered a great point earlier that there is an on and off aspect. It's true that the thought does exist. It's true that you exist. But what he's talking about is there's this gradation within the set of things which are. And I think one mark of that is that causal dependence relationship. Um, the mark of that for goodness is something which can be apprehended hopefully by our, our well-ordered wills, that your mother is better than the flea-bitten rat. And our intellects are meant to be able to sort out among different propositions, amongst different things, um, their relation to ultimate truth. They're, they can all have some truth, right, in order to be intelligible or apprehended by the intellect at all. But our ability to rank them is our ability to put them into degrees. Okay, that, that was extremely helpful. I like that it's the it's a cause because it's the prerequisite for anything to have more or less of that particular quality. And if you didn't have that prerequisite, then nothing could participate in it in a more or less way. And in that sense, it's the formal or the exemplar cause. I think that that is very helpful, Jake. But then we got this final claim here, and then I might hit you with a couple of objections. Okay. I know you've, you've right. dealt with a lot of objections, but the last one is therefore, quote, Aquinas says, Therefore, there must also be something which is to all beings the cause of their being, goodness, and every other perfection, and this we call God. End quote. 
How did we get here to God? Right. Seems like a jump, but that's where our, our transcendental twist is, right? Because we talked about earlier how salt explains its own saltiness, but not its own existence. There's nothing about salt that has to exist. God could have created a universe without salt. No problem. The question is, could he do it without all the other transcendentals? Like, is that something that just could not could not be? Well, that's a little bit trickier because when we talk about being, which is what we're getting at with the goodness, with the nobility, with the truth, does being contain within its nature the reason for its own being? Does existence contain within its nature the reason for its own existence? Well, Aquinas would say, well, yeah, it does, right? <laughs> because just like in all those other examples, you have to have something which contains within its nature the reason for its own saltiness, the reason for its own redness, the reason for its own fill in the blankness. If we are to have degrees, we do have degrees of being and truth and goodness, etc. And all those others are convertible into being, though, honestly, it's tangential to his argument. He could have just made this only with being, but we have the degrees. Therefore, we have that which defines the set, which allows them to be in degrees and that maximum, like all the other maximums that we describe, contains within itself the reason for its own, in this case, being. So now we've arrived at something which is the cause of all being by containing the reason for being within its own nature, the cause of all goodness by containing within its nature the reason for its own goodness, the cause of all truth, the cause of all nobility. And nobility also relates to perfection, but that's a little bit of a digression. Um, so there we go. And we can continue to unpack. And this is where nobility finally kicks in. Nobility relates to actuality in the way that we were describing earlier. And one such actuality is the actuality of intellect and will. We know that God doesn't have these in the same way that we do, but we know that any actuality is ultimately derivative from the maximum actuality in the way that we've been laying out. Therefore, God has at least this power. He has an over and above a will. He has an over and above actuality of any actuality that we can find anywhere. So here's our being. He has will or something beyond intellect or a power beyond. He maximizes goodness and causes all goodness to exist, maximizes truth and causes all truth to exist. He causes all being to exist by being the ground of being himself according to his very own nature. Well, if that's right, then I think it's totally plausible to call that God. Is that what you had in mind, too, when you said you think the fourth way gets us a bit further than oh, one, two, and does. three? Oh, I think it, I, at first it seems like there's this uh, this this giant leap, but I think as we start to dig in, we realize we're overthinking it. Even I, I think, can understand it. <laughs> so um, it's, it's not too bad of an argument in the end. And I think, in a sense, because it goes to prove so much, we come to it with a little bit more, um, with a little bit more suspicion, um, mm. but I don't think we need to. Um, but yeah, I think it proves a lot. Some of the other ones, it takes a lot of unpacking, but once we understand this idea of like this kind of ontological grounding and the, the type of causality that it's doing, it's not like an, if this, then then causality, it's a, this, and all things are dependent on it kind of irrespective of time, irrespective of some other um, uh, typical things that we would have to trace through and, and parse out. I, I want to raise a couple of objections that, that you deal with in your article. And for, for those, again, listeners, we're going to be linking to, to what Jake has written on this. But one, I just want to make one prefatory remark. I think why this way is more opaque, Jake, I, I truly think it's because we're not really used to nor taught at a young age 
to think metaphysically, we're really almost just so used to just doing on and off switches and reducing things down into uh, that, that like just being like that, that something exists or that has an active existence. Like, well, it either exists or it doesn't. It's real or it's not real. And there is that fundamental level of discourse that is legitimate. We're not denying that. But there's also a whole metaphysical way of probing into that deeper and further that Aquinas and Aristotle and others are doing. But that since we're not really trained to, you know, from when we're young, we're just kind of like we do a lot of reduction Mm-hmm. We kind of reduce things down to like, well, it's this or that, this or that, and um, flatten it out a bit that when reality isn't seen to be as rich and intelligible as Aquinas and Aristotle think it is, it's harder to pluck out these gems. But here, there's objections, though. So some of the objections are in this vein that I picked out. Here's one um, from your article. What if someone just says there's no such thing as goodness or truth? Because what we arbitrarily call things and people are just collections of basic particles, super strings, or some similarly basic existing stuff. There's, in fact, just one type of basic simple something that plain old exists, and that's all. All of what we experience is just emergent properties from that fundamental basic stuff that's really real. I think that's what people have in their mind sometimes. What do you say to that objection? Oh, man. Well, I don't really remember. You'd have to read the article. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, off off the cuff, you can like always retreat somewhere, but it's at a very high intellectual cost. So that's point one. Um, but the stronger point is if you really want to say that we're going to go to, and that sounds like a type of muriological nihilism, then the issue is there's nobody making the objection. Because you've just denied that there's any type of wholeness. Further, I'm not sure how you can actually discuss the objections of existence at all, because the objection isn't strictly material. And if you want to go on that, I mean, how do you even parse the words together if you can't relate to a whole? And then we have the whole continuity of self from time one to time two, such that you can make the argument. So if you really want to push this that hard, destroy the concept of a whole writ large, um, well, dandy, but then we can't really have you launch an objection, which is a bit awkward. So, yeah, I'd say that that would be one of my ways of, of answering that. And as soon as you say, OK, OK, fine, 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 fine. I'll accept the whole of at least myself. I'll accept the whole of at least my objection and your argument. Well, then we're back to fine. You exist. Your argument exists. My argument exists. One is more true than the other. Gosh, darn it. There's gradation of truth. Or we can talk about the ontological dependence of your argument upon your mind. Oh, my goodness. Well, there's a dependency relationship there, which relates to different levels of being. So it's very difficult to launch that argument without accidentally affirming the premises of the fourth way. I think there's a couple other examples. I like to give a few answers to each objection if one just doesn't feel like it hits the mark. So check the article for whatever else I happen to say. All right, one more then, and this okay, this would also right. be a problem. The maximum of goodness, truth, and perfection, this is the objection, and whatever, you know, so-called transcendentals, they would all be a different God because goodness, truth, and perfection are different concepts and their maxima would be different. Either you have to make the claim that these are a defini- definitionally different things, that they're actually not that, that they're the same thing, which just seems false, or you have to affirm that your argument would prove multiple gods, multiple maximums of goodness, truth, 
nobility, and so on. And then if you have multiple gods, that seems to destroy classical theism. So what do you say to that? Gosh darn it, John. Who wrote these objections? <laughs> wait, yeah, wait, it was me. Um, ooh, let's see. Let's see. That is tough, right? But at that point, we have to rely on um, in what way are these philosophically convertible into being? And then we have to ask the question, well, it, it, it can being itself um, cause a diversity of effects that we can then witness, right? And I think the answer for that is, well, yeah, right? So if we have this this absolutely infinite actuality, then where's the problem in drawing out limited actualities? If we have a maximum type of existence, where's the problem in drawing out different types of existence from this infinite maximum? So in a sense, it's like, well, all right, this is an appeal to our, our, our senses of in our created order, truth and goodness appear to be different. Well, sure, whatever. That's why we have different words. I agree with that. But when we're tracing from the created order back to the ontological referent, well, that can be one. And indeed, it has to be one um, for a variety of reasons, which lead us a bit outside of the fourth way, reasons which are more second way like that we have to have something in order to bring things into composition that must not be composed in and of itself. So it has to have that type of ontological oneness. And if we do want to take it from a fourth way kind of perspective, um, one of the other transcendentals doesn't appear on every list, but I do think it's legit is a type of metaphysical oneness. So the metaphysical oneness argument we can talk about, we can run with a similar fourth way logic. And if that doesn't cohere all these, I don't know what does. Well, Jake Busher, this has been a really exciting defense of the fourth way. I'll call this like, this is like our initial gambit, the initial defense of the fourth way. We've not covered it on the Classical Theism Podcast. We've done episodes on the first way, the third way, the fifth way. I don't think we specifically did the second way because it kind of gets incorporated some of the similar reasoning with first and third, but we've never done an episode on the fourth way until today. So thank you so much for defending it for us, for explaining it. I'll be linking to all your articles, and thanks for joining us on the Classical Theism Podcast. It's a subject I'm excited to to revisit myself and look at further, but please let listeners know, where can they go to find out more about your work, and then we'll say goodbye. Yeah, it was an awesome chat, and uh, I hope people love The Fourth Way as much as I do now. Um, so yeah, it's great. Um, where can they find me? Well, I have a podcast called Cutting the Gordian Knot. Um, not the Gordian Knot. I think that's a legal podcast and also a children's story podcast. So I'm sure they're great. But if you're looking for Cutting the Gordian Knot and more on the fourth way, I would go to my podcast. Um, we have some recent episodes. The most recent, I think, is uh, 12 Reasons Why We Theorize, it's kind of speculative theology, that Satan was actually the angelic governor over animals. So interesting stuff there. Uh, we also have a debrief of Trent Horn's recent debate with Jacob Imam. We do cover plenty of economic topics in addition to theological, philosophical, etc. Um, so yeah, you can always uh, see what I'm uh, yattering on about over at my podcast, Cutting the Gordian Knot. And I have a website, which I occasionally post articles on. That's called thegordianknot.org. And you can email me anytime about really anything at thegordianknot101 at gmail.com. I love all email, um, love mail, hate mail, any email, um, suggestions, questions. Um, yeah, I'm happy to get anything. So email me, uh, check out the podcast, website, all that stuff. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on today, John. It was a blast.
Well, Jake, that is fantastic. And honestly, by the time this releases, I'm sure you'll have some more content out on your podcast as well. But I will make sure to link to the podcast, the website, the email where they can contact you. We'll put all that, as well as the articles on the fourth way, of course. We'll have that in the show notes page. But thanks again. It has been a blast. Thanks, John.